Good evening and welcome. Um, my name is Gabby Woods and I'm delighted to be here with Stella Remington uh, in a couple of thrones opposite each other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we feel very honoured. Um, Stella, as you may know, is the author of seven spy novels, uh, the latest of which, The Geneva Trap, I think most of you have read, actually. Um, and all of them feature the counter-terrorism expert Liz Carlyle. Um, before she embarked on her career as a novelist, you may also have heard this, um, Stella was Director General of MI5. She was the first woman to have held that post and also the first male or female to be publicly named. Uh, she oversaw an unprecedented degree of transparency then in the service and she retired in 1996, if that's mm -hmm. right, um, and wrote a memoir after that in 2001. Um, Last year, she was the chair of the Man Booker Prize judges, and um, I had the honor of serving on that jury too, so I can tell you that these achievements that I've just named, which seem impossible on paper, in fact, are completely understandable when you meet the person, because only Stella could have pulled them off. So please join me in welcoming Stella Remington. So we'll have time for some questions from you, but I, if you don't mind, I will just ask a few first. Um, can you tell us about Liz, how she came into being? Um, well, I'd always wanted to write a, a thriller, I suppose, basically. It was a sort of ambition that I had all the time I was in the service, but it's not the kind of thing you can do when you're working for an intelligence service. And the other thing I wanted to do was to rescue the spy story from the men because it seemed to me that all the most sort of well-known spy story heroes were heroes, i.e. were men. And so I thought it was about time. As by then, there was a woman head of the service, namely me, and there were quite <laughs> a lot of senior women in both bits. I mean, both in MI5 and MI6, but more in MI5 at that particular time. And I thought that I wanted to kind of represent reality, really, and show what, what women did and how they were different from men. So, you know, starting to write a spy story, which then became spy stories, because when I first started, I thought it might, might be one. I didn't realise it was going to be a series. Was a fulfilment of these sort of aims and objectives, really. Um, but then it turned into interest and excitement and pleasure and all those things. So that's really how it started. Hmm. And how are women different in that context? I mean, In the service, yeah. particularly. Well... I mean, everybody's different, obviously, but the, when I first joined MI5, it was definitely a male-dominated world. Women were... There were two career structures, actually, and I joined as what was called a junior assistant officer, which was the women's grade, and women were basically there to help the men. So we, we had desk jobs, and, you know, we dealt with the papers and the filing and sorting things out and doing a little bit of intelligence analysis if we were quite bright. But mainly we were kind of, you know, doomed to be second-class citizens. And as the years rolled on, and as more women like me with degrees and who'd done something else joined the service, um, and as the 70s came along and sex discrimination legislation and um, women's lib and all that occurred, we started to say to our bosses hang on a minute, why are we kind of doomed to this permanent second-class career? And they didn't know what to do at that time. They sort of puffed their pipes and scratched their heads and thought, well, 
Oh, we'll have to give one or two of them a try. So that's what they did. <laughs> and of course, what happened was gradually, uh, of course, then we had to show that we could actually do the work as well as the men, uh, which some of us did. And what happened, of course, was that by letting women do the intelligence work, you introduced diversity, variety, mm -hmm. different ways of approaching things, and all the things that anybody who runs any company knows you need. You need to use all the skills of all your different staff, not just half of them. So, I, you know, women are all different from each other. They're different from men. But excluding them means you're excluding a whole range of possible approaches and, and possible talents, including them, means you've got the diversity and variety hmm. that any organisation needs. Were you only good at filing? Uh, no, filing never really grabbed me. <laughs> and I can remember, really, I, when I first joined, I found it so boring that I used to read detective stories under the files. Oh, you see. So there you go. <laughs> so that gives away my real interest. But it wasn't uh, fascinating work, I would say. My first job, I was responsible at that time, we were responsible for identifying all members of the Communist Party of Great Britain because it was at a time when subversion was a very important subject. The Soviet Union and their allies were trying to spread world communism by undermining Western democracies. And one of the ways they did it was by controlling and infiltrating um, national communist parties. So it had been decreed by the government that nobody who belonged to the Communist Party of Great Britain should be allowed to work in government departments where they had access to classified information. So in order to support that policy, we had to know who all the members of the Communist Party of Great Britain were. My first job was to identify all the members, I think it was of the Sussex, <coughs> Sussex branch of the Communist Party of Great Britain, and you can imagine that was not very exciting work. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I was ready for a move by the time <laughs> the things opened. We'll, we'll come back to the Cold War in a minute. But that, was, that, was that actual members, not, not a sort of McCarthyite, uh, sort of under the radar? No, system. no, it wasn't going around accusing people of being right, subversive. Right. Just it wondering was, if there was uh, some of that. No, no, it was, it was signed up members. And of course, it was a help because they had party cards. And um, <laughs> most, most <laughs> of them nice read the, the uh, what was it called, the Daily Worker. So identifying yeah. who bought the Daily Worker was quite a good way of doing it. Mm. But anyway, that is all in the past, I can tell you. <laughs> we no longer, I don't think, uh, well, there probably still is a Communist Party of Great Britain, I don't know, but certainly I don't think my colleagues are interested in it anymore. Mm. And in this book, uh, well, there's Geoffrey Fain, who's a wonderful example of, of, of a man who sort of seems to have spent quite a long time scratching his head over the fact that women are there at all, you know. Um, I mean, what about this relationship between MI5 and MI6? Um, I mean, to what extent is it representative, th this book, of how they collaborate or how they ruffle each other's feathers? Or Can you talk a bit about that? Yes. Um, for those of you who don't know, we, I mean, most people will know, but we've got three intelligence services in this country. MI5, which is responsible basically for protecting us against serious threats to our national security. In other words, it's the defensive service. GCHQ, which is our technical intelligence service, and MI6 whose job it is mainly to gather intelligence from abroad to help our security, our foreign policy, our defence policies, etc. So those are the three services, and each service has a different sort of ethos, a different way of working, and requires different kinds of people, so they recruit differently for the different job that has to be done. So um, I do take uh, you know, a bit of kind of wry pleasure in, um, in creating sort of tensions between the people who work in MI5 <laughs> and the people who work in MI6, which is 
you know, I don't think all that true any longer. When I first joined, it probably was more true than it is now. The services didn't... I, I don't think their, their roles were as clearly clarified as they are now, and they did tend to kind of rub up against each other. And because they employed different kinds of people, people would rub up against each other in the way that uh, Liz and Geoffrey Fain do. Um, you know, I've created Geoffrey as a sort of archetypal MI6 officer of the kind I remember, <laughs> i.e., you know, three-piece suits, um, silk hanky, uh, club tie or, or um, regimental tie, polished brogues and all that stuff. I bet you wouldn't find many MI6 officers really like that nowadays, but they were, and I can remember a number of them. But he's, he, so he's a kind of archetypal MI6 officer. And Liz, I think, is an archetypal MI5 officer. She, I mean, she's got bits of me when I was young and bits of other MI5 officers I've known, females, and I've put them all together and created this character. So them rubbing up against each other is a, a bit of a kind of dramatic thing for me, but was historically true isn't, I don't think, any longer. I think they all work very closely together because there's so many threats, so much work to do, that I don't think anybody is kind of chipping at the edges of what other people are doing in the way they used to. Hmm. Well, it would be difficult to be so territorial when things have become so global. Well, really, exactly. Yeah. And, and they, I, I mean, there are MI5 officers working in Afghanistan. There are MI6 officers working at home. So, you know, they are much more working together and with the police because now and again you'll find me making kind of slightly wry jibes at policemen as well in some of the books. <laughs> um, and that comes from my history as well. But I think the truth of the matter is that now, you know, the intelligence analysis which is done in MI5 is now done by teams of people which include officers from MI5, MI6 and the police, the Home Office, and the whole thing is much more of a collaborative unit mm. than it used to be. Interesting. And this is in counter-terrorism, and you started writing after 2001. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wondered why you made her, why you gave her that department, but also whether it was a good idea to have her there because she might travel. I mean, it makes the stories more exciting. Or, I mean, what, yes. what were your inferences there? Well, she has been in counter-espionage as well. Yes. Um, I think it probably there's more counter-terrorism in the novels because I like to keep the plots very up-to-date. And I keep a sharp eye, really, on what's going on in the world and what the current threats to our national security are. So I have dealt, you know, I've dealt with the recurrence of um, Republican terrorism in Northern Ireland. In this book, um, as you know, I've dealt with drones and cyber, cyber attacks um, and in other books with terrorism in different, in different ways. But I do like to bring in the counter-espionage aspect as well. Mm. Um, because, um, you know, it's still going on. And um, in illegal action, I said, to, when I was thinking about that plot, I said to them, I read that there were as many officers from the Russian intelligence service present in London now as there were during the Cold War. And I said to myself, what on earth can they all be doing? Well, obviously, one of the things they're doing is gathering intelligence about all sorts of subjects, because London, particularly Britain, is a great sort of melting pot. But I also thought they were probably interested in some of the Russian oligarchs who live here and, you know, are spending large sums of money, some of whom are not particularly pro-Putin. So um, I, in illegal action, 
I dreamt up this plot, which involves an illegal from uh, the Russian intelligence service, which harks back in a sense to the Cold War, but is still very current. And of course, I, while I was writing that book, Alexander Litvinenko was killed by poison in his tea um, by, almost certainly, uh, an operation coming out of Russian intelligence. So I thought in that case, you know, fiction was ahead of fact, actually. And I think if I'd written a book where somebody was murdered by polonium in their tea, everybody would have said, oh, ludicrous plot. You know, that can't possibly happen. <laughs> but, yeah. Later on, they would have said, you'd done it. Yes, you invented it. <laughs> Did you give them the idea? Yeah. Said, I think. Well, how about the Cold War? I mean, is it... Do you feel that there's a threat that it might return or in some form? Mm, I don't think the Cold War would return in any mm. form that we would be able to kind of recognise as the Cold War again. But I also don't think that our relationship with Russia is going to be particularly comfortable mm. for, you know, who knows how long, really. I, th I mean, Russia seems to me to be a country that always resorts to fear of the outside or tries to generate fear of the outside world whenever there's any kind of a crisis. So I think it's relationships with, you know, what we still call Western countries are always going to be uneasy. Um, and um, particularly, I mean, I think their intelligence service is unreformed as far as I can see. When the Cold War came to an end, um, in, it was in December 1991, well, when the Cold War came to an end, we were suddenly able to make contact with our former enemies, um, the services of the East European countries. And we went off, you know, to the headquarters of the Poles and the Bulgars and the, heaven knows, the Czechs and all that sort of thing and started, you know, making friendly contact and working out how we could work together. Now the Cold War was over and they were working in democracies. And that all went well. And we did develop quite good and close collaboration. But then came the day when... Um, Douglas Hurd, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, met the man whom Yeltsin had put in charge of the KGB. And he identified this bloke, who was a professor at a, a university, as a true Democrat. And he said to him, we've just been legislating for our services, because the Security Service Act was passed in 1989, to put the service on a legislative basis. Would you like me to send some people over to talk to the KGB about how they you know, will work now they're in a democracy? And um, this professor said, oh, yes, that would be a very good idea. I'm very concerned about democratising the KGB. So um, <laughs> three of us went over to the Lubyanka, which is their headquarters. It was just after the statue of Felix Zhezinsky, who's their founder, had been dragged off its splinth. And, you know, the whole thing, everything was in a state of complete disruption, really. And so there we were in the Lubyanka, which is their headquarters, prison, torture chamber, death cell and office. <laughs> and um, so there we sat, talking to this long line of KGB officers about how they will be behaving now they're in a democracy. And clearly they had no intention of behaving any differently <laughs> from the way they'd always behaved. And um, that professor didn't last more than a few months in that position. And I think you know, the, the successor of the KGB went back very much to working in the same ways it's always worked. And I think relationships between my former service and MI6 and them have been very jumpy and, and bumpy all the way through. And no really close collaboration such as developed with the former East, well, East European countries ever developed.
Mm, but he was genuine, you think, that man, that particular man, otherwise he wouldn't oh, yeah. have announced it. No, he was, he was genuine, actually, and he really did believe, you know, that the moment had come when the former Soviet Union was going to become democratic, I think. And we saw that, you know, that visit as a moment of hope, really, because we, too, at that stage, <coughs> December 1991, thought there was going to be real change. Mm. Um, and it was quite clear that the people in the Libyanka saw it as a moment of failure, and they were going to cling on to as much sort of power and the old ways of doing things as they possibly could. Mm. And it, that was, so how long had you been in the post? Not long at that point. I w that was just before I became Director General. Oh, actually. I, I was see. deputy at that stage. I think that was when I had my James Bond moment because I can remember <laughs> it, it was December, so it was snowing in Moscow. And um, we were invited, me and my two colleagues were invited to dinner with the KGB. And the British ambassador was invited too. So I set off from the British embassy in Moscow in a Rolls Royce uh, with a huge Union Jack flying on the bonnet <laughs> to have dinner with the KGB in one of their safe houses on a snowy Moscow night. And it was really like a scene <laughs> from a James Bond film. <laughs> that was the first trip to Moscow, yeah. wasn't it? The, yeah. I mean, the first It was the first time overture. we... Yes, mm. absolutely. Before mm. that, you know, there was no chance I would ever have gone yeah. to Russia except covertly, and that was really MI6's job. <laughs> <laughs> and so these things sort of work their way into the novels, don't they, in intriguing ways. I mean, um, I was trying to work out the dates of, of Alexander Solsky sort of arriving to speak to that group of students where Liz, as you, you'll know in the novel, Liz first comes across him, but she tells Geoffrey Fane actually in a flashback, doesn't she, that, uh, that she met him when she was a student, an undergraduate who was sort of uh, in a seminar with postgraduates. Yes. And that would have been, well, clearly it was it post. It was post 89, right, but I don't know how much so it could have post. been around about 1991, actually. Yeah, funnily enough. When uh, <laughs> he was out, um, obviously, he'd, he'd been sent out to university to sort of uh, spread the word and snuffle out whether there were any interesting and exciting people around, because mm. he was he was a KGB or, or FSB officer. Mm. And in terms of the research that you do, or not even research, but how you keep your eyes open for what threats there might be. I mean, clearly drones is a huge issue, but mm. you, I mean, it, it could be anything. Presumably you read the newspapers and you think, oh, but uh, what, what are, well, I suppose I'm interested in what your sources are, but also what your antennae are, you know, what you're concerned about as you go along. Well, I read the newspapers and I take a very close interest in what the security issues of the day are. And then I imagine how my former colleagues <coughs> are, are going to be dealing with it. So that's really the way I do it. And I think what would make a, a good plot, um, which of these things that's going on in the world, you know, is actually can be turned into a containable plot in the space of a book. So I suppose I was, I mean, including in, in this book, I mean, there, there are drones, there is cyber attacks, um, and there is also a kind of um, flashback, in a sense, to the Cold War with the offer of service. So I've, I suppose I've been a bit greedy, actually, in the plot <laughs> of this book, because I've included three different sort of aspects of uh, partly what's going on and partly what went on. Um, but that's the way I do it, really. And then it's about moulding these things into some kind of coherent plot. But the advantage now for me is that I've got my main characters and most of those characters are going to go on, I mean, insofar as the series is going to continue. I think they will go on because I, I know them now. I like them. 
and I, um, I feel interested in the way they develop. So mm. that's a big advantage, actually. So you don't have to dream up your whole suite of characters each time you write a book, although each book, of course, requires other subsidiary characters and, and brings them in. Mm. Do your former colleagues worry about your books? No, uh, I have to submit them for clearance, so they Do know you? they're going to see them um, before they're published. How does uh, that work? They, well, I send them in, um, in final manuscript form um, before they've put, been put into any, any kind of proof form. And they read them. Um, I know they do, and they and so does MI6. I mean, nowadays, <laughs> both these services have uh, departments really to do with um, facing outward. Um, when I first joined, of course, we didn't face outward at all, and nobody ever. We never said anything about anything to anybody, uh, which was a, a big disadvantage actually, because it meant that people could write stories about us in the press, and we never denied them. And we used to think that newspapers had a made-up headline which said MI5 blunders, which was put on any security thing, story there was. So that was a disadvantage. But so now, since really, since um, I suppose I was appointed Director General, my name was announced, we started to work far more in terrorism. And in this country, of course, we regard terrorism as a crime. So a successful terrorist operation tends to end with the arrest of the terrorists and their trial in court. So that meant that our um, officers had to start appearing in court and talking about what they'd done. And so the whole process really moved towards greater openness. And so um, that, uh, I've, I've forgotten why I'm saying that actually. What, what, what were you asking? Well, you, you were talking about the clearance. Of the oh yes. And so um, the result of that was that each service now has a team of people really devoted to dealing with the press to dealing with the outward-facing aspects of the service. And people writing books that have to be cleared fall into that category. So there are people. I mean, it's not, I'm not taking people off desks where they're dealing with terrorists in order to read the books. That's their job, basically. And they, you know, there are historians who are now looking through the files because m many past files are now released to the public record office, as you know. You'll have read stories in the newspapers about you know, what happened to X, Y, and Z, famous person or whatever. So there's a whole industry really now about reviewing what can be released, about you know, reading people's books, because I'm not the only person who writes books, and uh, about all sorts of things, and dealing with the press inquiries and all that kind of thing. But is that, is that required because it's a book about MI5 and MI6, so anyone who writes this book would have to submit it for clearance, or is it because you're a former employee? Um, the rules are that... Uh, anything, if you are a former employee, anything you write that can be seen to relate to your work in the service has to be cleared. So whether it's a novel, whether it's a factual book, whether it was my autobiography, which also had to be cleared. Um, but if you, if you, we were talking about this earlier, if you kind of, if I wrote an article about, you know, ash dieback disease or something, that, that wouldn't have to be cleared. So it really is just anything that can be seen to relate to the work in the service. And have you ever had anything not cleared? No. Um, I mean, I've been asked to make changes mm -hmm. of various kinds. Um, in the novels, small changes, I've been asked to change a place where I had a meeting. Liz Carlyle was meeting somebody in a pub, and they asked me to change that pub, presumably <laughs> because they were <laughs> operating in it. Um, I've been asked to um, change names, 
which obviously, though I didn't know, must have been the names of somebody who was doing something. Um, I've been asked to uh, be less precise about some surveillance operations, because most of my books have got some kind of a surveillance operation in them, usually, nearly always in London. Um, and I've been asked on occasions to be just slightly less precise about what they can and can't do in the way of communications. And in fact, I, I was just saying earlier, I probably learn more about what they're actually doing from <laughs> <laughs> the things they've asked me to change than I do uh, know, because of course I don't now know anything about the detail of what they're doing. So if by chance I kind of fall over something, it really is literally by chance. Oh, that's good. There are a couple of sort of quite abstract th thoughts that I had. You know, one was about the writing of fear. You know, you do, you write this very well, and I wondered whether that was to do with your personal experience, you know, having felt that your life was in danger. And, and the other is um, to do with the psychology, you know, characterization in fiction versus trying to read people in actual practice. Mm. Um, I mean, are those things related? They are related. Um, I think the fear thing... Um, I personally have never actually felt afraid. Um, I suppose the time when me and my family were most at risk was when the government announced my name when I was appointed Director General. And because no real press plan had been made, I mean, I was told this, I was told one day you're going to be Director General and um, by the way, almost, the government's decided that when you're appointed, your name's going to be made public. And I thought at the time, I'm not sure this is a very good idea. I approved <laughs> of the openness, but I knew this was going to be a sensation. The first time the head of any of our intelligence agencies had been announced, and it was a woman. And I said, you know, well, what was the press plan? And there wasn't one. And I think that's, that was a kind of interdepartmental muddle that they'd sort of sat down in Whitehall and thought, oh, yeah, jolly good idea, let's do this. And, and, um, and that was it. They'd made a decision. And um, so I said to my predecessor, well, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And he said, well, oh, you better talk to the permanent secretary at the Home Office, who was instrumental in taking these decisions. And so I rang him up and said, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And he said, oh, well, the prime minister's agreed it. And I thought, my God, I don't want to start this job by arguing with the Prime Minister. <laughs> so um, we went along with it. But it was a PR, <coughs> a PR disaster, actually, because the first thing that happened was there were all these kind of... Uh, the tabloids obviously thought, here's a woman. You know, she's not James Bond or Smiley, so she better get back in the kitchen. And so the headlines were housewife, super spy, and mother of two gets tough with terrorists and things like that. <laughs> And then, of course, they quite easily found out where we lived because, I mean, they knew my name. They, um, I had two daughters at school in London. Um, we'd always just lived in an ordinary London street, relying on my total anonymity. Uh, nobody in the street knew what I did. And gradually, you know, the press, working their way, found out where we lived and came and interviewed the neighbours. And then um, The Independent published a photograph of our house and it was at a time when the IRA was very active on the streets of London. There was a, an active service unit around. And so we had to move very quickly with, you know, my younger daughter who's doing her GCSEs, the dog, a suitcase each. And we moved into um, a flat at the top of one of our offices, which was absolutely impossible because, I mean, if the dog wanted to go to the loo, 
we had to come down <laughs> two lifts and pass the armed guards on the door. Uh, so that couldn't last. So, you know, my early months were chaotic, really, as we found somewhere safe to live. And then we had to kind of live covertly. And my younger daughter, Harriet, who was, I think she was probably about 16, had to learn, you know, how to live under an alias, uh, how to live covertly, who, you know, had to think about all her friends, who could she invite to the house, who could she give her telephone number to, who did she really trust. So it was a, quite a, a rude awakening for her. So that was um, my bit of, I suppose it was fear for the family, really, because I felt at that stage, you know, I was asking myself, am I justified, really, in exposing these girls to this not only threat but disruption and general disturbance of their life. Mm. Um, but physical threat, I think I, I felt on behalf of other people. For example, the people that we used to send into Northern Ireland. The worst thing really was when, um, if you get an offer of service, if somebody kind of rings up in one way or another or <laughs> contacts us and says they've got information to pass, what do you do? You've got to send somebody into an unknown situation to get this information and hopefully it doesn't mean face to face but it might so um so that's you know that's the kind of obviously you take every precaution all the kind of tradecraft and everything to protect that person but there is this anxiety on behalf of the boss particularly you know about how is this is, is this going to work mm. so that was that's the fear side what was the other oh, the characterisation, but I The characterisation, I, I think, obviously, any intelligence officer is very, very interested in people because, you know, even now, in technological world, people are the most important sources of intelligence. And so any intelligence officer is interested in people, what makes them tick, why do they do this, that, or the other, what can you ask them to do that they will do, um, how are they going to respond and all that. So I think that is a kind of novelist's stock in trade, really. Mm. Now, just back to Liz, I'm worried about her and Martin. Martin. Yes, Martin. <laughs> Martin. Martin, sorry. Um, but also, it's interesting to me that she doesn't have children, let alone grandchildren, you know. Are you afraid of writing that book where she ha keeps this job but has her children? I mean... Yes, I mean, it's quite difficult, really, because if Liz is going to go on being you know, the main character in these books, there are various problems. A, she can't get promoted too far because once she becomes director general, she's not going to be operationally involved. Mm. So that's a problem. Secondly, she can't get too old. So she has to kind of, in a sense, the books have to go on sort of faster than she does. Um, so that's a bit of a challenge because, you know, she's she started off being kind of mid-30s and now she's kind of, ill-definedishly kind of, <laughs> <laughs> possibly 40. Um, the, so she, and I don't think that she can get married. Um, it's a worry, actually. When I was in Australia, originally, Liz had, she had a passion for her boss, Charles mm -hmm. Weatherby. Anybody who's read the earlier books will know. <laughs> and this was when she was much younger, or sort of more immature. And she thought she was in love with the boss, but the boss was married to somebody else. And I thought maybe to solve this problem, the somebody, I gave the, somebody, the, the woman that the boss was married to um, a, a sort of terminal illness. Um, and so that went on for a bit. And then in the end, she died. And then the dilemma came, exactly. 
is she going to marry Charles Weatherby? And she thinks she thinks Jeffrey Fain is wondering this at the beginning. Yes, of one of them. and Jeffrey Fain's yes. got a sort of penchant for yeah. Liz as well. But then I went to Australia, and um, I was talking to a, a kind of a literary lunch thing, and these people, um, mostly women, were popping up and saying, "I don't think that Charles Weatherby is any good for Liz." And, um, <laughs> and then some people were saying. Um, oh, she ought to get married. And then somebody else was saying, oh, no, no, no. Somebody else said she ought to have a baby. And just your question. So I came back from that trip and wondered what on earth to do with Liz and decided that she was going to ditch Charles Weatherby. They were, the one who'd said that he was no good for her was right. And so I gave her this rather nice French boyfriend who works in one of the French intelligence agencies. And I thought he might do for quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but obviously from your comments... I'm not sure he is. I mean, we're going to have to have some kind of resolution of this relationship. And it is quite difficult. I mean, you know, it's quite funny in a way. But if you're going to keep the sort of consistency and credibility of these stories, you have actually got to deal with these sort of relationships. So the question of Marta is now beginning to say that he's tired of working in the intelligence service. And I'm beginning to wonder whether he's actually going to change his job and she's going to keep her job. Because at one stage in the book before this, mm. he was saying that he wanted her to come to Paris um, to live with him. And I didn't see how that was going to work at all. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so now she isn't. So we'll see. I mean, this is a problem that I now have to face. So uh, I'll let you know. If you read the next book, you'll find <laughs> we'll out what, what happened. Now, I know you'd like to ask some questions. I just have to, before I, I let you do that, I have to ask you about James Bond. Ah. Because where would Julie Dench be without you? Um, not M, I suspect. <laughs> so, I mean, you've seen this last film. What do you I think? Have. Well, I thought this last film was very good, actually. I must say, I haven't seen all the James Bond films. And I was, you know, I was beginning to think, oh, no, these are useless. They've all gone so violent and extreme, and it's so completely unrealistic. But then I went to see this one, and although, obviously, it's still completely unrealistic, <laughs> um, I did think it's actually a very good film. And, I mean, I have a penchant for M, Judy Dench, because obviously M became a woman very shortly after I became Director General. <laughs> and Judy Dench did look very like I looked at the time. So obviously, you know, the whole thing was kind of modelled on the fact that there was a female head of MI5, even though they got the wrong service, but that didn't matter. Um, but now, um, I, I, I mean, Judy Dench is... I don't want to tell anybody who hasn't seen the film what happens at the end, so it's a bit difficult. But Judy Dench gets much more involved in the action in this film, which, of course, is completely unrealistic. You don't have um, director generals participating in operations. But nonetheless, I think it's, it's a very good film. It's got all the kind of violence and the flash and banging and the everything. But halfway through... I think it becomes quite sentimental. Mm. And we learn more about James Bond's background, about his parents and where he was brought up. And, um, and um, M gets quite involved. I won't say any more than that. Yeah. Um, but, I, yeah. There's I a, there's a sort of overarching principle. Are the intelligence services getting out of date or are they, in fact, yes, spot on? Yes, that or, was um, one of the questions asked at the beginning. Are you all now too old? James Bond, Judy Dench, everybody, mm. you know, and we need to move on. And they've turned Q into a, a sort of geek aged 25 or something instead of the old buffer who used to preside. Um, so I think that's quite good as well, actually. Yeah. So I recommend it if anybody who's not seen it. Oh, I should let you ask some questions. There is a microphone that will go around. If you put your hand up, um, it will reach you. Um, does anyone have anything to ask? Thank you, yes. 
I've got two questions actually. The first is um, we hear a lot about Liz's parents and uh, her mother in particular, and I wondered if any of that was based on you or, or your people you knew. And the second question, following on from Bond, was do you think there would ever be a female Bond and what would the reaction <laughs> be? <laughs> so Liz's parents was one, and do they reflect any of my personal background? And the other one was is there going to be a female James Bond? Um, no, Liz's parents don't really reflect my background, um, but I thought that they lent a bit of colour, really, to her personality, in that her father died when she was quite young, and her mother was very protective, and, and Liz felt the need to sort of break away and do something more interesting than just staying at home and helping with the market garden and marrying some, some very suitable bloke. I, no, my parents never felt I ought to marry a suitable bloke, um, <laughs> I'm pleased to say. Though I, I did, of course. I married somebody that I met at school, so, you know, that was me rather than them. But uh, my father was actually quite worried about the fact that I'd joined the intelligence services and thought that I was in daily danger. But I think that reflected a period when absolutely nothing was known about what the services did at all. Um, as far as will there ever be a female James Bond, I think it's highly unlikely, actually. Um, not unless they're going to change the utter everything about James Bond, because all that fighting on the top of trains and <laughs> such like, I just don't see a woman doing that. I think there should be, but probably not a James Bond. I mean, I think what we need now is a, you know, another kind of franchise with a female doing female things, and I can recommend Liz Carlyle as a <laughs> for that. Um, but I think James Bond is, is there. You know, he's this incredibly unrealistic, macho sort of figure. And I think, you know, he's with us, actually, for better or worse. I don't know how long they can spin out uh, these things, because they've well run out of stories that Ian Fleming wrote. Um, so they're writing their own now. But, you know, I think it's, people love it. It's good entertainment, and they're making a lot of money. Thank you. Yes, do we have another question? Yes, can you, can you hold on just a second until the mic reaches you? And, well, just so that everyone can hear. Thank you. Um, I see in the Evening Standard tonight that they are advertising for MI6 uh, recruitment. How were you recruited? Oh, yes. Mm, that's a good question. I was recruited in the way that everybody was recruited to British intelligence in those days, by a tap on the shoulder. Um, there was no open recruiting. Nobody knew. I joined um, MI... Well, I, I sort of joined MI5 at the end of the 1960s when I was with my husband, who was on a diplomatic posting to New Delhi in India. And I'd given up my first job, which was as a historical archivist, to go off with my man, as we did in those days, we women, uh, went off to support our man. So I was there as a diplomat's wife, kind of running coffee mornings and, and jumble sales and things. And somebody sidled up to me in the High Commission compound and said, do you want a job? And it was the head of the small MI, MI5 office that there was at that time in the British High Commission. Because in those days, MI5 was responsible for helping Commonwealth countries with their security. And we had small offices all over the Commonwealth. And he had too much work to do. So I was recruited as a part-time clerk typist by the head of the um, office in, in Delhi. And I couldn't type, actually. <laughs> but um, it didn't seem to matter, because in those days, it was far more about who you were than what you could actually do. And as the wife of a diplomat, I was you know, going to be safe and secure, they assumed. And so that was how I started. 
And it was a great time to start because uh, India was at the forefront of the Cold War um, in those days, late 60s. It was stuffed with spies because both the Soviet Union and the West were fighting for influence in that part of the world, and everybody had got their intelligence officers there. So in, in our little MI5 station, we were responsible for trying to identify the intelligence officers from the other side, warning our people against them so that we didn't have any more you know, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean-type recruitments. And um, I thought this was great fun. And um, so when we came back to London, I applied for a full-time job in MI5's headquarters and started work. And as I say, it was a disappointment to me because I found they were running this two-tier system, which I didn't like. Um, but gradually, we managed to change it, so it, it was all right. Um, so that was the way re recruitment was done. Nobody knew who worked in British intelligence. Nobody knew how you joined. Nobody knew where they were. Nobody knew what they did. So people went around tapping each other on the shoulder. The result, of course, was that in my former service, anyway, you got a kind of um, a sort of culture that was kind of self-perpetuating because you, if you re recruit by tapping people on the shoulder, you tend to tap on the shoulder people who are like you. So there were a lot of people who knew each other who came from a military or ex-colonial background, and um, it created a rather static, inward-looking culture, which was not, is not the right culture for a secret organisation. I could expand on that at great length, but that's the answer <laughs> to your yeah. question. Thank you. Yes, at the back, sir. Thank you. I was wondering, you mentioned that um, the people, uh, that your neighbourhood didn't know what, you, what job you had. Would you be able to tell us what you pretended to be, and did you use your own imagination, or did you were you given a script to follow? Can I just did you I didn't hear the beginning. Of yes, that. it was to do with the um, so that that question was when you when you said that your neighbours didn't know what you oh, did. Oh right, okay. Did you have a set script that was given to you, or did you uh, make, make it up, it up fact, on the night? Yes, were you yeah. inconsistent? In your <laughs> well, I think there are two um, answers to that question, really, um, and the first is that you tend you have a cover story when you join the service, which everybody has, which is that you work for some other government department. But then, you, if you are you know, having kind of social life, you tend to make up a story for the occasion. And so, I mean, if you all go to your neighbour's Christmas drinks, you will know that one of the first things anybody asks you when you go into the room is, what do you do? And... So if you go to your neighbour's Christmas drinks, and the truth of the matter is that you do tend to avoid that sort of thing if you work in a secret organisation. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a good thing because it means that people, you know, tend to avoid involvement in the kind of ordinary social activities that most people take for granted and mm. make friends within the circle of secrecy. And that's not a good thing, really. But anyway, so you, if you go to your neighbour's Christmas drinks as I did occasionally, you tend to make up a story for the night about, you know, how you, I don't know, your PR for a cosmetics company or, you know, you work in the Ministry of Defence. Whatever it is, you can guarantee that somebody is going to know all about the thing. And somebody will say, oh, my uncle's in the Ministry of Defence, you know, or um, which cosmetics company do you work, etc. So you have to be quite careful. And the result is that people do tend to avoid those kind of social contacts. So the people in my street really hardly knew me. They just thought I was a quiet lady who went off to work somewhere or another and came back in the evening. So for them, when they found out what I did, they didn't like it. 
they thought that I was bringing a threat to the street because it was at a time when the IRA was quite active and there was all this interest. And um, we were slightly, you know, people, somebody wrote, I lived in Islington, and somebody wrote to the Islington Gazette and said that my helicopters, ceaselessly circling overhead, were keeping their family awake. And the helicopters were the police monitoring the Arsenal football ground up the road <laughs> and had nothing to do with me at all. So it was that kind of, you know, kind of over-excitableness happened, which is really, ultimately, with the, um, with the independence photograph, why we had to go. Can you say what the cover story was? That was your question too, right? The cover story that people your cover given. Story. Mm. My co- um, I Well, I used to say sometimes, well, mainly, that I worked in the Home Office. Mm. Um, and people, you know, that sounds boring, and people don't really inquire. <laughs> or you get a second, you know, your sort of antennae start to twitch when you know that they're going to start, you know, trying to find out more, so you move on to the next group. You get to kind of get a feeling of, of these sort of situations, really, I think, when you work in a in a secret organisation. But, as I say, it is a pity, though, that, you know, it is more difficult to have ordinary social life than it is... Because if you're young, you know, and you're making new relationships and things like that, you've got to decide, are you going to... What are you going to do? Because if you start off by telling some kind of story about what you do and the relationship prospers, then there's going to become a moment when perhaps you want to say what you really do and then you know, there's this sense of deceit. So all these things have to be thought through quite carefully. And it is, it is a problem for the young, particularly, mm. even to this day. Difficult. Someone else has a question. Yes, would you hold on a second? Do you have the mic? Sorry. Thanks. Um, you talked about your early days in the service. And this is perhaps a slightly unfair question, but I was wondering whether or not you'd read Ian McEwan's yeah. new book, Sweet Tooth. Uh, and whether you thought it was a good evocation of the service around that time. Well, and in I particular, haven't. what you thought about the minor character that appears to be quite strongly based on you. Yeah. <laughs> I know there's a character based on me, which is why I haven't read it, actually. I've got it sitting beside my bed. And um, I keep saying, shall I read this? Um, but I haven't, because I'm afraid I might get annoyed by the character based on me. So, but I will read it sometime, but I'm afraid I can't answer the question because I haven't read it. It does, it does seem to turn on something like that, where the, the love affair is sort of, you know, that something is not, disclo- not disclosed and then eventually, you know, it can't it proceed because wrong. of this deceit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, yes. Um, and isn't there, um, hasn't enough. this character, didn't she start her career as an archivist, which I did? And I think that I've heard that this character has got that element in its background as well. Yeah. Right. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. I may dare Blink. to read it now. <laughs> Blinking your message. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Oh, oh you put it. I'm sorry. It's a very quick one. When did you tell your children, or how did you? Oh, tell your that's a good question. Um, my children didn't really know what I did until it all became public, which was a problem as well. They knew. All they knew was that I worked for the government, and and it was something we didn't talk about. And that satisfied them, actually. I don't think children are madly interested in what you do uh, for a living. But then um, I was able to tell my younger daughter, who was still living at home before all the publicity, but my older daughter, who was at university, I wasn't, you know, we went kind of day-to-day in contact. And she told me that she was sitting, you know, in in her digs, and the television was on in the corner, and she (gasps) saw they were talking about me. 
And she said, Mum, I thought you'd done something wrong because I knew you weren't supposed to talk about your work. So she had a, a more difficult time because she got journalists coming to the front door with microphones saying, what's it like having a mum doing this job? And she had no idea how to answer. So it was very difficult for her, actually. And maybe, well, if I'd been, you know, if we'd been in day-to-day -day contact, which one rarely is with one's children at university, I, I could have prepared her, but we didn't. And that was a worry, mm. actually. And what was their reaction when they discovered what you did? I don't think they knew what it meant, actually. Um, I think my younger daughter, who's living at home, had quite a difficult time because all her friends were saying, God, I read about your mum in the paper. You know, is she James Bond? And all this sort of thing. <laughs> and I think she was quite embarrassed by all this. But then gradually, you know, they got used to it. And now we can talk about it and laugh, really. But there were some quite difficult times. And I, I felt guilty, as I said earlier. At one stage, I thought, you know, should I do this? Am I justified in putting them through all this? But somehow, I don't know. I mean, all of you, particularly females who work, know that once you've got your feet on a path, it's actually quite difficult to, to take them off it, and especially when you've just been appointed to a job like that. So I went on with it, and we sorted it out. Yes, two questions here at the front, I think, unless yours has evaporated. Oh, no. Okay, sorry, <laughs> yes. Hi there, I just wanted to ask you what inspired and drove you to write the autobiography, and what sort of reaction did you get? Was it quite challenging, etc.? That's the question. Did you hear the question about the, my autobiography? Why did I write it? I don't know, actually, why I wrote it. I'd never intended to write an autobiography at all. And when I left the service, I had you know, letters from various publishers saying, you know, we'd love to publish your autobiography. And I wrote back snootily saying, I can't possibly do that. It's all too secret. And then um, one day, I was giving a talk to a group of women about my life, and particularly about balancing the work-life balance and all that sort of thing. And the head of Random House, Gail Reebuck, was there. And she said, you've just given a very interesting talk without revealing any of the nation's secrets. Uh, you could write an autobiography. <laughs> Clever her, um, <laughs> of course. So I s sort of went away. And it was a summer, and I wasn't doing anything particular. And I thought, well, I wonder if it would be interesting to try. So I started. I didn't have a contract or anything at all. I just thought, well, hmm, I'll have a go. So I started writing it with really no intention at that stage of publishing it or doing anything with it, really. And having started, you know, I wrote the first six chapters, which is all about before I joined the service, and that all seemed okay. And then I sort of got to the bit where I joined the service, and I kind of swallowed and thought, what am I going to do now? And I went on, and I was sort of censoring myself all the time, obviously, because I knew what I could and couldn't say. And I, I kind of, having started, I just went on and got to the end. And then I said to Gail Reebuck, well, I've written this thing. Um, and she looked at it and said they'd like to publish it. Um, and then I submitted it for clearance to the service. I, gave, I was having lunch with um, um, a colleague who later became the Director General, Eliza Manning and Buller. Um, and I, at the end of the lunch, I gave her this thing. I said, I've written my autobiography. Do you want, you know, here you are, kind of thing. And she practically fell over. Um, <laughs> because it was, you know, it was not done. Uh, anyway, that was me submitting it for clearance. And it went off into the clearance process. And there was a deathly silence for months. Nothing happened. And I thought, what on earth is going on? 
And uh, I spoke to a colleague of mine in the Foreign Office who'd written a book, and I said, what happened about your clearance? And he said, oh, well, they cleared it in about three weeks. So I thought, hmm, something's funny. And anyway, the next thing that happened was that somebody in the clearance process put the uncleared manuscript into a brown paper envelope and sent it to the sun. <laughs> and then the shit hit, so the, the, hit the fan, <laughs> as you can imagine, because the sun then rang me up and said, we hear you've written your autobiography. And then there was this great headline about Stella Remington's million-pound autobiography <laughs> or something. Um, uh, so that started this great furore in the press about, you know, she's going to reveal the nation's secrets and should she, shouldn't she, etc., etc. And anyway, it was ultimately cleared and I had to take a few things out, which I did, and it was published. And all those people who'd said, this is going to, you know, reveal the nation's secrets, then said, boring, boring, <laughs> you know, it doesn't reveal the nation's secrets at all. And so, it went, so that was the story of my autobiography. It happened, really, rather than intended, in a way. Thank you. Do you want to ask that? Oh. And, and after that, there are a couple of questions. How much time do we have here? Um, to me, one of the things that gives Liz's character so much depth has been sort of the subject of the last few conversations, which is the, uh, the interface between her real life, which is her covert life, mm -hmm. and her no longer real life, which is the real life of all the people she's close to outside of the service. Yes. And this affects her romantic choices and relationships, but particularly <coughs> she can cut this off, but she can't cut off her relationships with her parents. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be also a kind of, even after she's able to tell them, there's that what you said just now, they don't understand what it means, this incommunicability of that experience. Mm. And, um, and so I wanted to ask a little bit more about the, the, whether that reality of isolation draws you deeper into your professional world, because there is no way of even those who do know to know. Mm. And secondly, related to that in a bigger sense in terms of the future plots, I wonder whether you will be addressing also the changing environments, so things like rendition and secret tribunals and things that are, I imagine, affecting operations and the way someone like Liz Carlyle might operate later on. Yeah. Well, on the first part, um, I think the fact that you get more and more drawn into your kind of secret world does affect your personality um, and it affects the whole way that you live your life. Um, because the truth of the matter is well, was. I mean, I have to be a bit careful because things have changed slightly and there is now more openness and people are allowed to say more now about what they do. Though if they're doing covert work, I mean, they're still told, if you're going to join the service, don't tell everybody or don't tell anybody, in fact. It does affect your personality and I think what it does is means that you are not as kind of gregarious um, as you might have been had you had a different kind of profession. And I think it, I know that it is more difficult to make sort of casual friendships, to have broad, you know, broad groups of friends. You tend to become more isolated, um, I think, and to make your friends more within this ring of, of professional ring. So I don't think I... I mean, I think my personality was probably altered by joining a secret organisation. I think if I hadn't, I would probably have been a far more gregarious, you know, bonhomus kind of character 
and far less kind of introspective and, and, um, and cautious than I became. And I think that's reflected probably in Liz's personality as well. Um, she is, she's quite cautious, you know, about what, she, what of herself she gives away. She's quite protective and defensive about herself. And I think that probably reflects me and other people who work in similar kind of work. Um, as far as future plots and reflecting, well, I do want to reflect what's going on, but I don't want to get into sort of political debate about the rights and wrongs of things like rendition, torture, etc. Because I think that would become, it would become less of a novel and more of a kind of political statement, really. And I don't think that would be the right way of dealing with it. But I do, I do want the books always to be placed in the world as it is now. But uh, I think I'll keep away from you know, these quite contentious political issues. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm, I have to come back to. Can we start at the back and come forward? Yeah. Um, you've talked about other countries, Russia and, and the Commonwealth, and obviously, so many superpowers have large intelligence operations, such as the, you know, the United States, China. Do you, with your knowledge of what goes on, do you ever open a newspaper and think that's classic? China and they're packaging it in such a way that it looks like something else or America or India or anyone else. You mean when some um, event has happened? When, when the general public, us, would read about some event or, you know, obviously there's so much going on in the world with the US election, China's yeah. in transition. Stories do come out that we would take at face value. Do you ever read a story and think... It's not Hang quite on a minute, what, that's, t yes. that's classic Chinese intelligence. Yeah, I think I do, actually. I do um, read stories about what's going on, perhaps looking behind them, really, for um, what I think is probably, you know, led to it or caused it or what might be going on behind the scenes. I think that's true. I think I do. And I think anybody who's worked in my profession would do the same because there is an awful lot, you know, that we don't see. Uh, about how things have actually come to, you know, come to where they are. Um, so yeah, that's true. I, I can't, I'm, can't think of a precise example of that. Um, but yeah, I think the hallmarks are when things look as though they've happened by chance. Uh, <laughs> they often haven't. I think that's a hallmark, absolutely. And I find myself thinking, you, yeah, I bet that's not. What, it, what it's being written up as, <clears throat> I bet there's a lot more behind that, and I can imagine some of the things that might be behind it than appear. Um, you know, there are, there are various... I mean, there are still some sort of classic Russian intelligence-type operations going on. For example, I mean, the, um, the, that group of illegals that were discovered in the United States, I mean, I think I probably could work out quite a lot about what had gone on behind all that than appeared in the newspaper. And there was an, a, another case here where um, a woman was being <coughs> accused of uh, um, getting alongside an MP um, and was in fact acquitted. And I think I probably could see a lot more of what had gone on behind there uh, than actually appeared in the newspapers. So yes, is the answer. Thank you. Um, I was fascinated by the thought about you turning fact into fiction. And it made me think about um, Black Swan by Nicholas Taleb. 
and he talks about 9-11 being a black swan no one could predict it. And so how American intelligence then turned to authors to help us start to predict the future using fiction to help us turn that into fact that may happen. So two questions really. One is, did you ever turn to any authors to help you predict the future? And which authors would you have turned to if you didn't? <laughs> um, no, we never turn to authors to predict the future um, because predicting the future is not really what intelligence work is about. It's about um, trying to gather information about what's actually going on rather than trying to foresee uh, too much of what might go on. I mean, obviously, you have to see trends, but I think my former colleagues are actively engaged in trying to prevent things that are actually being plotted and planned now. Um, and you see some of the successes in people who appear in court from time to time. So foreseeing the future is not uh, a great, very profitable. And I don't think that the Americans would have got much benefit uh, from trying to foresee the future after 9-11. I mean, the benefit they should have got, it seems to me, was to uh, actually understand and, and collate the information that they already had, which might well have enabled them to at least to see that something horrible and serious was being planned. Whether they could have prevented it, I don't know, but there certainly were straws in the wind around there which needed to be collected together. And I think that was one of the problems of American intelligence, which I think they've addressed, to some extent anyway, was this inability of the different parts of the American intelligence system to talk to each other um, and to make sure that all the information was collated in one place. Uh, so I can't answer the second part of your question because I never would have turned to uh, authors to try and foresee the future. Are there any new British newspaper or broadcast journalists writing about security matters who you particularly respect or think are accurate? Um, there are a number of um, British writers on the subject in the serious newspapers who are, who are quite well informed. Um, and they're able to be much better informed now than they could be because both all our intelligence services now talk to the, the media in a way that they never did before, not by revealing you know, details of their operations, but by giving them um, the, enough background for them to sort of understand and put in context what's going on. So, I mean, some of the BBC uh, journalists, like Frank Gardner, for example, are, are pretty well informed. Richard Norton Taylor, uh, who wrote does he still write for The Guardian? Yes. Um, has always been, I think, pretty well informed. Um, Michael Evans, who used to write for The Times, was very well informed. So yes, there are a number. Uh, I mean, I can't kind of list them all, but there, there are a number of British journalists who are now well informed, and I think that's the right thing to be. I think the intelligence services have a responsibility to make sure that in so far as it's possible, without revealing sources, methods, or operations, they can get the right kind of context out into the public domain so that things are better understood and journalists don't go off on, you know, mad kind of exciting exposés of things that don't, aren't really happening. <laughs> Thank you. Now, we have to end it there. Um, I should say that Stella will be signing here afterwards, so please do form an orderly queue. Um, if you can. But uh, <laughs> before then, I'd just like to say thank you for coming and thank you. Thank you. Thank you.